I'm going to go ahead and pray. And I hopefully everyone got to share a little bit. Um, others stick around and share after. But um, let's just go ahead and take a few minutes to pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift um, of your presence with us, your son, um, this season we have to focus on his birth, on his incarnation. Um, we thank you that you are a God who dwells with us. And one of the ways in which you uh, lo love us and reveal yourself to us is through these precious relationships, even in this room, as we are able to be brothers and sisters um, and love one another, know one another, um, and be a witness to your world um, through our love. So God, I just thank you for uh, the churches, the organizations in this room, um, who all who are um, pressed for time and have financial concerns as the year wraps up and fundraising and um, extra services or programs or events that are happening that add to already full plates and burdens. And so we thank you for um, all that you've given us to steward, and we when we surrender it back to you, knowing that these are your ministries, your churches, um, and you are the one who's building them. And we thank you that we get to be um, participants and servants and vessels of your work. God, I thank you most especially for your words, the words of Jesus and the gift he is to us in this season, and pray that this uh, next hour would just be refreshing and refueling as we meditate um, on how precious uh, your son is and the ways in which you're revealed to us through the scriptures. Be with Tyler as he speaks. Um, bless and anoint his words. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, good afternoon. You guys are a welcoming crowd. Wow. I didn't even, typically, when you do, typically when you do that in church, you at least get like 10 responses. That was zero, by the way. Um, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Uh, you don't have pieces of paper in front of you. If you did, I'd have you draw a picture, which most of you all would hate. But when I say the word words or idea words, think for a minute and just give me, I'm going to ask your response, the immediate image that comes in your mind. Think of an image of words, and then some of you start shouting out, what's the image that comes to your mind? Creativity. Creativity. Love that. Scrabble. Good image. Credit card application. Pictionary, did you say? Dictionary. Pictionary also, that's right, that's right. Yours was better than Dictionary. What else? Story. Knowledge. Let's see. A wordle. That's great. Anybody else? Revelation. That's a good word we'll talk about. What's that? Freedom. I love that. So one of the pictures that comes into my mind, not because I'm super pious, um, but there's a passage in the Bible, and the image that comes to my mind is the image for poison, you know, the poison image, and then kind of a simple emoji-type image of fruit, poison or fruit. There's this verse in Proverbs 18.21 when it speaks about words that says this. This is from the ESV translation. Uh, Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Meaning, those who love words, whatever you will, whether you like it or not, because we live in a word society, you're going to eat the fruit of either 
Good words, life-giving words, or death-giving words. Eugene Peterson in the message says it like this, that death and life, that same idea, are in the power of tongue. He said, words kill or words give life, you choose. Words kill or words give life, you choose. Now, if you slow down, the reason I love that translation is it's just so direct. Words kill or words give life, you choose. And the reason I love it is it's so specific to reality. Meaning, if you're a parent or you have a spouse or you've had roommates before, you know this reality of how you can take a life out of the room by your words or you really can breathe life into a room through your words. So you can take it, you can kill it, or you can breathe life. So just the night before last, I had a moment with my son, uh, my oldest son, who's 11 years old. And there's moments as a parent where you have to correct. You guys know that. And you use words to correct. And so at this moment, he was doing some things. And truth be told, it was frustrating me in the midst of it. But I had something I needed to correct but the, what I intended for my words, what I purposed for my words, didn't produce the outcome I wanted. The outcome that came out of it was essentially sucking life out of him. And in the end, my desire was to instruct him into a better way. What happened is I just shamed him. And then his response to me at that moment was very scoffing, you know, oriented. It was kind of scoffing, distant. Let me push you away because that's a very human response. If I walk into an environment and life's being sucked out of me, my propensity is to move away from it. If I'm being given life, then I'll typically move towards it. But this is true about human words. And I know you all can identify is so oftentimes, whether it's in a boardroom, whether it's um, sitting at a table, even over a lunch, or it's in your family, what you intend for your words, what you've purposed for your words, right? doesn't always come out. In fact, way too often times, it's the opposite. What you intend for it is not accomplished. Now, that's true with human words. It's not true with God's words. I'm gonna ask you guys, we're talking about the word of God today, so I'm gonna ask you guys to utilize apps if you have them or Bibles if you have them. But if you would, um, in a couple points, I may ask somebody out there to turn to a passage and read it. Uh, But right now, in... Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, famous passage uh, about the word of God says this, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. See the contrast between human words and God's words. If you're honest with yourself, maybe you'd say most often what I intend for my words is not accomplished. He says that which I intend, my words will not be returned to me empty, but they will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So when we think about words, If we're honest, a lot of times they're frustrating. We don't like Scrabble or we don't like what happens or communication is hard. This is why in marital counseling, you always in premarital counseling should talk about communication. Communication is a key to a good marriage, meaning communicate a lot. Well, why a lot and why not a little, right? Well, there's multiple reasons, but one of them is, is a lot of times you need a lot of time to actually communicate what you're trying to say. 
right, in the midst of it. That's not true with God. God speaks, things happen exactly according to the way he designed them to happen. One of the most amazing passages that speak to this reality of the action-oriented nature of God's word and therefore the power of God's word is in 1 Kings chapter 13. If you want to turn there, you can. But in verses, if you're taking notes, you can do this. 1 Kings 13, verses 5, 9, 20, 21, 26, and 32. I'm going to say them again. 5, 9, 20, 21, 26, and 32. It says, by the word of the Lord something happens, and then actions immediately after. It is an incredibly powerful and very disruptive chapter. But you see, by the word of the Lord, this man went. By the word of the Lord, this person's healed. By the word of the Lord, another person comes. By the word of the Lord, another thing happens. This is very similar to the book of Acts. The word of God goes forth and action happens. So let me ask you a question. This inviting your participation. What are other points in the Bible where you see God speaking and something happening? Okay, creation, right? When you think about creation, tell me immediately, because most of you could quote, at least, maybe not identical, some idea in creation. Say, at the very beginning of the creation story, God says, let there be light. Right? Now, just to make a very simple, simple contrast, if the lights are all out in this room right now, right, and it's dark, and I say, let there be light, right, unless I have like the clapper where the lights come on and I clap, but otherwise, if I just say, let there be light, what happens? Nothing, right? And there's electricity in the room. The only way I can say, let there be light, is if somebody hears it and goes and turns on the lights. At this moment, let there be light, and then what does the Bible say? And there was light. Let there be light and there was light. This happens all over the Bible is that the word of God speaks. So I have a children's Bible that I'll read to my kids and it talks about the creation of it is that God spoke strong words, powerful words. And then ultimately, the minute he speaks, things happen. That's this whole idea of creation. The difference between us being creative and creating things is we're creating things out of stuff that exists. God created what the theologians would call ex nihilo, from nothing. He speaks, stuff happens. Now, let me ask you this. If you're a theologian, and everybody is, we don't have time to go into this, but everybody is, but if you've studied theology at a small level or a really big level, what's one of the most common ways to study about who God is? You'd pick up a book on what? The attributes of God, right? So name out some attributes for me. Just throw out attributes of God. Okay, immutable, right? He's unchanging. What's another one? Omniscient. He's all-knowing. Omnipotent, all-powerful. Let's just take that one, for instance. If you study a theology book on omnipotence, right, on what omnipotence is, he's all-powerful, how is it going to show you that God's omnipotent? So God's omnipotent now begins to define it in a theology book. I'm looking under attributes of God, the omnipotence of God. What's going to come next? Okay, scripture. So give me an example. What's one of the passages that would teach me that God's all-powerful? You don't even have to give me the address of the verse. Just 
a story, anything. Okay, the creation account. What would another one be? Job, the book of Job, for sure he begins to speak it. What's one of the ones that's used all over the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament? The Psalms, the Exodus, right? The Exodus story is all over, is that you watch God doing these miracles in the plagues, but look at what the Bible's showing you. It's showing you God's actions. This is really, really important. If you want to rightfully interpret the Bible and understand how God moves, the only way we know who God is, is not by getting in a room and pontificating, what do I think God is like? We do go to the scriptures, but the scripture tells us stories of real events where God entered into history and displayed his power. By the way, this is the very same reason we bring people on stage to tell testimonies. Why Paul says, you are my letters of recommendation. Your lives have changed. Why a man in John 9 walks up and is now, he was blind and now he sees and everybody's freaking out, right? Is that at the end of the day, we know who God is by his actions in the real world. Not by us pontificating what are deep truths that sit up there in the heavenlies, but like in the here and now, here's what God has done in real events. So watch this. Those events happen most oftentimes in the Bible through God speaking something into reality. So if you think about this, if we had a whiteboard up here, I'd write God's word leads to God's actions, which are the means of us knowing who God is, of understanding who he is ultimately is. He speaks, things happen, we know, right? Now think about this in the word of God. I'm building out a reality for us to see these aspects of words of life. When we talked about at the beginning in Proverbs 18, words kill or words give life. God's words are always life-giving words. And I'll make this statement on on the side of this. Even when they're words of judgment, because judgment is the speaking out or the stamping out of death, of destructive realities to bringing forth life. Right? In him was life, and this life was the light of men. Right? It's very specifically, they're life-giving words. Now, think about this for a minute, because if we know God based upon the real world, this is really, really significant. And then we're going to get into a couple um, things we learn in the study of uh, the doctrine of Scripture that you call it. So in Colossians chapter 1 and in Hebrews chapter 1, there's these statements specifically about God that it was by God's word that he spoke the whole universe into existence. He created all things through his word, Colossians 1 says. And then Colossians 1 says, in him, all things consist or hold together. In him, that's the word in, by the way, in the Bible, massive, massively important. In him, all things hold together. Hebrews chapter one says that he is holding the universe together by the word of his power. Now, slow down long enough, because some of you have heard these verses before, but if that's true, that means everything we can see, Colossians 1 says, and everything we can't see was created by the word of God. Now, who's the agent, if any of you know this, in Colossians 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, that's the actual one speaking things and holding things together by his word? speaking them into existence and not just speaking them and remaining distance, but holding them together. It's Jesus. Colossians 1 and 
Hebrews 1 is saying this is Jesus, that it was through Christ's word that everything we can see and everything we can't see was created. And then it says, all things, all things were created by him and for him. And in him, all things hold together. Hebrews chapter one, they all hold together. How do they hold together? By the word of his power, which slow down long enough to think about that. Everything Everything was created by him. And there's all these things we can't see. All of that was created by him and for him, by his powerful word and is upheld by his powerful word. And everything we can see, which means right now, this building that was designed by an architect I know, done by a a contractor and construction company that I know of, it wasn't held together by them. God utilized them, but it's being held together by the word of God's power. Your nose is sitting above your mouth right now and staying there by the word of God's power. Your eyes are remaining above your nose by the word of God's power. If we believe this, if we're Christians and we say we believe the Bible, that's exactly what this is saying. Now, if you think about when Paul sits at Athens and he sits to a bunch of people who don't believe them and he says, hey, you have an inscription to an unknown God. And in the midst of this, he talks about how God appoints the boundaries and the times in which people live so that they might seek and find their way to God. He says that. And then he makes this incredible statement that truthfully, many Christians would freak out if they really delved into the implications of it. He says, it's in him. Remember the word in. In him that we live and move and have our being. Just stop and think about that for a minute. It's in him. So no matter, he's speaking to unbelievers, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, whether you acknowledge the lordship of Christ or you don't, whether you recognize the fact that he spoke the world into existence and upholds it, whether you recognize it or you don't, it's in him that you live and move and have your being. There's this dialogue that Herman Bovink has with John Calvin in this theology book that he speaks about in which he is interacting with Calvin and speaking. And there's moments where Calvin's speaking and the moments where Bobbing's speaking. But this is the idea. He says, there isn't one atom in the whole universe. Now, how, how many of you have a little bit of science in higher ed at all? Somebody just really quickly, what's, what's an atom? What's made up of atoms? Let's say it that way, make it easier. Everything, right? Okay. So they say there's not an atom in the universe that isn't chocked full, sparking with the glory of God. There's not an atom of the universe that's not sparking with the glory of God. Everything's made up of atoms, right? So then here's the conclusion, Bavink interacting with Calvin, is there's this statement made. Therefore, to the pious mind with a pious heart, okay? You know what pious means? Godly. That means somebody who's been informed by the word of God that understands these realities. In him, we live and move and have our being. He upholds the universe by the word of the power. The universe that he upholds by his powerful word is the word he spoke into existence. They say to that person that understands that, the pious mind, the godly mind formed by the the truth of the scriptures with a godly heart, they may say nature is God. By the way, that's Calvin and Bavink, okay? That's not Deepak Chopra. Like that's, that's an astounding statement. And what they're saying, now you may go, if you've been trained in worldview, you go, nature is God's pantheism. Right? They would agree with you in that. Like nature is creation. There's a distinction between creature and creation, but it isn't a distant separation. God is in the midst of everything. 
by his word and his very presence. It's in him we live and move and have our being. So you understand that. Uh, Let me be very clear. There's a distinction between creation and creatures and creation and the creator is what I'm trying to say. But that's an incredible reality to make you realize you don't live a moment of your day without the word of God. Not a moment of your day. Now, the question is, what's the difference between when we intentionally push into and try to live by the life of the word of God and when we just live in what positively could be called common grace or what what could negatively be said massive presumption and pride, right, in the midst of it, that you don't recognize that these things are coming He causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust alike, right? So when we talk about the word of God, understand that reality. Now, all of that, which we just called, theologians would call general revelation, which was one of the words that was brought up here, general revelation. That general revelation is taking all of these things in the Bible that are speaking to us saying specifically, Creation speaks or the heavens speak of the glory of God. That's all the things Calvin and Bobbik were saying. But here's the thing. If that isn't just when you think about creation, do not just think about the Grand Canyon, the stars, and the sky. If he created all things, creation's all of human life. Every single day, everything that we're going around, general revelation. Now, let, let me real quick go back to Acts 17. That means if there's not one moment of every day where my nose is not over my mouth because of the word of God, right? Uh, Holding it that way. That means in the end, everything I bump up against in a very real way, I'm bumping up against God. Everything, all the time. This is huge for evangelism, by the way, huge. And Paul uses it in Acts 17. That's why he says, God's appointed the boundaries and the times in which people live so that they might seek and feel their way literally to God. Okay, so All of life is always revealing to us God. This is why the psalmist can say, only the fool says in their heart there is no God. Only because the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers would we ever say that there is no God. So now, just really quickly, as we move into this next part of Revelation, what do you think in the world, okay, follow the whole biblical story, right? Jesus comes, spirit empowers the people of God, the church, What do you think it is that people bump into, right? God has appointed the boundaries and times in which people live so that they might seek and feel their way to God. What do they bump into? What do you think in the end they touch that in the end is going to open their eyes to God? Okay. At the same time, time, two things were said, and this is perfect because I want you to see These are so inextricably linked. The people of God and the word of God. So let me say something to you about the word of God that's really important for us to understand. The word of God is the word of God, right? We know this. Peter speaks about this, that men moved along by the Holy Spirit who is God, right? Spoke from God out of their context, right? Out of their personality, they spoke from God and this word we call inspired because it's breathed by God, 2 Timothy 3. The word of God is breathed by him specifically, but by the people of God. So understand this. It's God's word written by the people of God 
to form the people of God for the life of the world. So follow that traction really quick. The word of God is the word of God, okay? It is authoritative, why? Because it's God's word. Why is it by God's word in 1 Kings 13, all over the Bible and in the book of Acts, that when the word of God goes forth, things happen? Why? Because it's the word of God. Why is it that Jesus can stand up and still a storm? Because he's the Lord, right? Because he's the one upholding the universe by the word of his power. Why can he go to Peter's mother and say, fever be gone and a fever's gone? Why is that? Why is it at a moment that he can come to a woman at the well and begin to converse with her and her whole life is turned upside down? Because it's the Lord's word, okay? Understand that. That's really, really significant in the midst of this. So it's the word of God inspired, written by the people of God, written by individuals that are part of the people of God to form the people of God. So two things in the word. There's a testimony in the Christian Reformed Church called Our World Belongs to God, that when it speaks about the scriptures, it says the scriptures are both record and tool, both record and tool. It's a record of God's actions. Remember, we always said that. We know who God is based upon what he's done in the real world, right? It's a record and a tool. The tool is to form the people of God, right? The tool is to form the people of God, that the means in which God is making his name known to the world is through the people of God. So let me ask you this question. Why did Moses write the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch? I'm just slowing you down a little bit. I'm not trying to presume you're dumb, you're not dumb, but why did Moses write the Pentateuch? to form a missional people. God had given a calling to the nation of Israel and he writes the history of how God moved in the world, formed them. I mean, moved in the world, Genesis chapter created the world, begins to progress the world, the reality of sin coming into the world, the calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, saying through you, Abraham, I'm gonna bless many nations. How? By making you a great nation. And through this nation, all the nations of the earth will come to know, that the world may know is the theme of the Bible, that the world may know that its king is Christ, right? So he writes the Pentateuch for that reason. I say that just to go, I think tons of us, even that are in ministry, don't slow down long enough to go, well, why is this being written, right? And this whole idea of it is a record, but why? Why are we being, being given a record, right? Because... God cares. This is really important to realize is God speaks the universe into existence. We screw it up. Now think about this as well. So he writes this specifically. We're going to go back to Proverbs 18 for a minute here. He speaks the world into existence. Then you have this moment in Genesis chapter three. How does the fall happen? How? Through words, right? So what happens ultimately? Right? God speaks to them and says, I've created this amazing place for you to inhabit. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule and subdue the earth. Right? The one word I'm going to give you is that there is a tree here. Don't eat from this tree. They disobey God's good word. Right? That phrase comes also out of a children's Bible um, that I read my kid. They disobey God's good word. How do they disobey God's good word? 
Say that again. Yeah, yeah, okay. So she's deceived. How was she deceived, right? So disobeyed, right? They disobeyed by eating of the tree they were told not to eat of. How were they deceived? The word was distorted by what? The serpent. What did the serpent do? Speak. So just realize this. In the midst of our world all the time, words are being spoken, right? So we have some counseling people we really like to listen to. And one of the guys will say, we're counseling each other all the time. The question is, is it good counsel or bad counsel? Words are happening and not just human words, but behind human words is a reality all the time of words that lead to death and darkness and words that lead to life. In him was life. And this life is the light of men. What makes humans really humans, right? The words of death, what does death do? takes away their humanity, like sucks the life out of them. So that's really significant for us to understand. So go back to the people of God, that God has given that this is a record and tool. General revelation is all of our life, speaking this. The way in which people are going to see it is what we call special revelation, is what theologians call special revelation. Special revelation is how do I make sense of the world that I live in right now? Because I have moments in my life right, that are far too infrequent where I touch something and step into something and go, this is like heaven. In a very real way, you could go like, what the heaven? Like, what is this? That was so good. What is this? And many humans, almost all humans have certain moments where something is so good that they begin to go, I want more of that. But they really are consciously or subconsciously asking this question of like, what makes that so good? Now, folks, this is what's so important. If the people of God are not there steeped in the word of God to go, I'll tell you what the inscription to an unknown God is. Like you're you're looking at this going, there's more, there's like divinity to this whole thing. And you have an inscription out there, Acts 17, to an unknown God. Or let me tell you why this is so good. Why that moment of your intimacy with that person is so good, right? And special revelation is what gives us the wisdom and the intelligence to go, hey, I don't know everything, and I don't have every answer to this, but I've got a pretty good direction, a very clear direction of what this is. But more likely, what they step into is a moment where they go, what the hell, right? Don't be offended, but literally, they're tasting death. They're tasting this imposing of hell on earth, and they're like, how do I make sense of this? And if we aren't there at the same time to go, Let us tell you why there are things out there that are this bad, why it hurts this bad, why there's so much pain in the midst of it. If we're not there to tell them, yes, with words, but sometimes with our ears as well, right? Be quick to listen and slow to speak, right? That you can listen to their words because there's healing in your ears, right? The ministry of listening, if you will, at that moment, there's huge healing. But what interprets general revelation for us is this is the Bible. So when the Bible's given to us in inspiration, these moments where you really are going, it's inspired by God. They're the words of God. This is why in 2 Timothy, um, there's, so 2 Timothy 3, the word of God is breathed, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is this statement where the word of God is given to us for rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness that the scriptures are what give us the means to make sense of the world. This is, I didn't grow up in the church, Alistair McGrath 
has a statement where he says, I'm a Christian because I think it get, makes the best sense of reality. And I use that all the time because it's really true. I mean, at the end of the day, like God got a hold of me. I couldn't have given all the answers, but now I'm like, I'm like this just really does make the best sense of reality. So when I get challenged, say for instance, one of the big challenges to the Christian faith is this challenge of how could God allow all this crap to happen in the world if he was really there and really good? And one of the things I'll say to an unbeliever that says that to me or to a believer that's really struggling with this problem of pain and this problem of evil is a little like when Peter faces Jesus giving a hard teaching and then Jesus goes, are you going to leave too? You remember Peter's like, where would I go? You hold the words of eternal life. So I'll sit and I'll look, say it's a believer struggling. Say I'm sitting with a 20-year-old that's really struggling, has encountered sexual abuse, parents not around, Now they're in the midst of drugs like crazy and our job situation's not working out for them. They're like, if God is real, right? And they're really intelligent and they give me a really solid rationale for, I'm not gonna believe in God because of this. One of the things I'll say to them is, okay, let's start with this. You live in the same world I do. So if you leave right now, you leave Christ, you leave the scriptures, you walk away from that, you still deal with the same problem I deal with you still have to deal with suffering. You still have to deal with pain. You're not going into a different world. You still, so so where, when you go there, what's your answer gonna be? Right? And then you have to answer this question. Why is it that you're actually mad at it? If this is just the way the world is, what is it inside you that's really mad at that? You've gotta get underneath this deeper. I have an answer to that. You're made in the image of God who's eternal, who without sin, death, pain, evil came into the world. I have, a, I have a worldview, a structure, a belief system that really helps me make sense of that. When I encounter it, when I encounter it in other people, what's your reason for why you're mad that you're encountering pain? Or why does it feel so wrong? Why in you do you know in the deepest parts of who you are, this is not the way it's supposed to be? Why is it that you really crave for life in a world of death? What is that? In the midst of it, what I'm taking at that moment is the real world. That's what they call general revelation, which is telling us in a way that we can't fully understand, but we intuit, we understand inside of us that something's up, right? Something's wrong or something's really good. It's this that gives an account for what that is. And this is where I want you to see from Adam and Eve God's communication to us is given so that we would have communion with him. God's communication to us is given so that we would have communion with him. Why? Because all things were created by him and for him. Now, let me move and get really practical here. This is one of the reasons why I really want to talk about this more in a group like Surge is we live in a society that more and more is struggling, maybe because, let's just take some credit, I shouldn't say credit, some responsibility for this huge departure of people from the Christian faith, right? I'm not saying it's all that, right? There's spiritual forces around it, but there's a huge trajectory that if you lead in church at all, you know people are jettisoning the faith like crazy, right? In the the midst of it. Now, 
One aspect is we could go, well, the Sermon on the Mount tells us not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is, is, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot of people that have claimed to be Christians along the way that aren't Christians along the way. All of that, I believe, right, in the midst of it. But there is a reality that many people are bumping up to the community that's meant to live out this word of God, right? And, and this is, Francis Schaeffer has this incredible um, little, you can get it as a little book, but it's a part of one of his larger works called The Mark of a Christian, where he really builds out this idea, the world will know us by how we love each other. And he makes this argument, which I think is hard to argue against, that God in his profound power has given the world the ability to judge the church on whether or not they're really the church based upon how we love. That's a really interesting idea, right? He's given the world the ability to look at us and say, are you really living up to the Lord of love that you claim to serve in the missus? So if we watch this happen, now what's happening in this, there's a, in the African Bible commentary in Titus chapter two, when it talks about the passing down of the faith from one generation to the next generation, there's this statement that's essentially made that says this, If one generation, which just so you know right now, I'm not making any accusations at any previous generations, but trying to lay upon us responsibility, not just to hear the word, but to be doers of the word. Here's what it says. If one generation passes down in teaching, in word only, the faith, but fails to live it out, obey it, the next generation won't challenge their lifestyle it'll challenge their beliefs. You guys follow that? If we speak it and say, this is it, this is it, you form them way more by what you do and they look and go, what they believe then has to be garbage. So what's now happening in the church, and this is, so I hope you hear my concern. My concern, which is all over the Bible, is that if we really are the people of God, who God has made this covenant with us, we have to obey his word. We have to live into his word. We have to press constantly. That's one of the biggest powers to me of the Reformation was this reformed and always reforming according to the scriptures, right? Is if at any moment we are presumptuous enough and not humble enough to look at the word of God and go, it's not gonna fillet us and show us where we've been disobedient, right? In the midst of it, that's a problem. Here's the other problem I wanna say to you that I see in the church all the time right now, which is as terrifying as any, is that now we think we got to get cute, right? We got to get cute with the Bible. And in the sense, like we start asking really big questions of the Bible as though we stand as the authority over the word of God, right? And we don't look and go, no, there is an order to creation. There is a way in which God says things are to operate. There is a way in which God deems males and females to be together. There is a means in which the way that creation's supposed to function in a way in which it's better to give than it is to receive. And if we don't live that first and foremost personally, and we begin to get cute of with all of the tools that we have, which hear me, I'm not at all arguing for a lack of deep study of the text. That's a huge problem. And it's, it's what missionary people would call syncretism. You're beginning to be formed more by the culture than you are by God and by the scriptures. So now you understand some concerns I have. Let me say two things. So one of the big things now that you'll hear a lot in when people deal with the Bible is they'll say things like, there's all these people who've really, really focused on the Bible, right? And they've begun to worship the Bible. 
We need to stop focusing so much on the Bible and focus on Christ. Okay? Now, there's something you just have to wrestle with here. It's like, if you, the minute you start studying the Word of God, you're like, Jesus is called the Word of God, and the Bible's called the Word of God. Like, how do these interact together? Right? And in a very real way, they're two sides to the same coin. You can't say that, okay? Like, you can't, in the end, go, you know what, we're going to lessen our emphasis on the Bible and really emphasize Jesus. Well, how do you learn about Jesus? The Bible, right? Like, I don't know how else you're going to know about him, right, in the midst of this. And, or I'm going to be maybe even uh, a little more provocative here of like red letter Christians. Well, if you believe that all of the Bible is inspired and breathed by God, the same God that spoke this into existence, then in a very real way, all the words of scripture are the red letters. If you believe that about the Bible, right, which I do. Um, fundamentally. And now in the end, this is really important too. I look at the New Testament and go, all the New Testament is, is leaders inspired by God taking to take, take on Jesus and his teaching and make it applicable in a present context. So they're looking at the Corinthians and the Corinthian church going, we're not living up to the ways of Christ in this way. This is what Jesus said. Now I'm going to build that out for you here. And we call it scripture specifically. So let me say this and tell you why I think this divide is there. And I'm going to put it for now in between these two terminologies of mastering, seeking to master the text, and then seeking to be mastered by the text. So there's two passages that you'll hear a lot, and this is kind of the the climax point of this, is in Colossians chapter 3, there's this statement where Paul says, let the word of God dwell in you richly, encouraging and admonishing one another, and doing it, encouraging one and admonishing one another. Does anybody know what comes next? By singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Right? Now, there's another passage in Ephesians chapter 5 that has a very, it's almost an identical ending. Encouraging one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But it says, be filled with the Spirit. So there's this sentiment of like, how were we filled with the Spirit? And I was taught really early that we're filled with the Spirit through the Word of God. Okay? Now, at this point, if somebody texted me that, I'd put the clapping emoji up. Like, yes. Right? That is absolutely, absolutely true. But what it says in Colossians is that we have to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So how does that happen? I believe in all of my heart that you kind of have, I'm going to make this really simple. It's way more nuanced and complicated than this. You have this growing group of people who really, really want to master the text. Like they want to live into this Second Timothy reality of where Awana comes from, that we would be workmen who are approved, rightly handling the word of truth. So let me loudly, loudly say to all of you, and let this sit between you and God, you know, you have to be one. If this is the words of life that we have in the scriptures that give meaning to the creation that's upheld by the word of his power, if these are the words of life. If you don't sit like Isaiah says, this is the one to whom I will look the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If you don't sit at that moment and go, I'm trembling at this because this is the words of life. Not many of you aspire to be teachers for you'll infer a stricter judgment. 
This, it's a responsibility. These are the words of life, whether you're passing them down to your children or you're passing them down in a small group or you're passing them down in the workplace, whatever it is, we need to be workmen who rightly handle the word of truth. Therefore, that's where these ideas of precept upon precept and trying to do justice or exegesis or expositing a passage are really come out of is that we really believe there is a task to have that we should under God's inspiration be confident in, but be serious about, Right? Now, let me tell you the other side of that. I have been around gobs of people who love to make that argument. But when Jesus says and John the Baptist says, you will know them by their fruits, I watch these people who love to exegete the scriptures. And the reality is when you play out the fruits of the spirit, they are living way more, the fruit that they have is way more the lusts of the flesh than it is the fruit of the spirit. Now, at some point, if we know them by their fruits, we have to go, for some reason, there was a miss between trying to master the text and letting it dwell in us richly to the point where we would be filled with the spirit that would manifest itself in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Guys, this isn't, this isn't crazy if you read the Bible because there are people all over the Bible who had mastered the text that Jesus said, you're like graveyards full of dead, men, dead men's bones. They mastered it, right? They mastered it, but they treated people like garbage. So there has to be, we have to do that. Workmen rightly handling the word of truth, but then we have to have this moment where we go, what does it mean to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly to the point where we're filled with the spirit? That dwelling, that's that statement in Colossians 3, that it would dwell in us richly. So just recently, um, there was an article I read critiquing this um, method of Bible engagement called Lectio Divina, right? And the criticism was, Essentially, if you don't know what Lectio Divina is, it's basically you take a passage of scripture and you just sit with it and you kind of let it speak to you, right? And the fear of it is that you would do it in such a way that you don't rightfully interpret scripture. And there's a concern in that. Like you got to go, hey, you can't just go to this and make it mean whatever it means. It's got to mean what it means. Like you got to do the work of it, right? The challenge I have with it is fundamentally this. The point of something like Lectio Divina is the letting it dwell in you richly. So the point of something like that, which I would argue vehemently, at least to many of the people I'm around, we are missing like crazy, like crazy, is these moments where we're really being formed by God through his word. The point of Electio Divina isn't to interpret the text, it's to be interpreted by it. It isn't to master it, it's to be mastered by it to sit at the moment and go, not go, I need to fill more, I need to fill more so that when I talk, everybody goes, they're the Bible answer person, right? That's not the point. What I want to be known for, they will know that we are Christians, what? By our love, by our love, the fruit of the spirit, right? So how does that happen? When I'm sitting with my son and I'm going, I have a really good intention here, but every way it's coming out is the lust of the flesh. It's division, it's rivalry, it's fighting, right? And then James 4, right, at that moment's going, what causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Is it not because you're not getting what you want? And I have to go, okay, I have something that's good to say to my son, but I think this is more about how he's peeing me off, right, than it is about what I need to say to him that he's not doing, right? So then at that moment, if I'm going to go, how does that change, right? 
or if I have these really negative views of immigrants or refugees or these other Christians or these other people, folks, you've got to sit down and go, how am I going to let the word of God master me? How am I going to let it dwell in me richly? So let me just give you an example as I close of something uh, that's been really helpful for me that truthfully I've been learning kind of through the history of the church. Is, so I'll give you two um, passages of scripture. Uh, one is specifically Ephesians chapter five and the fruits of the spirit. The other one is when the spirit of God descends, right? Because this is what I'm after is God, I want to be, there's this command you give me in the Bible to be filled with the spirit, you know, to be filled with the spirit in Ephesians chapter five, that I would manifest the fruits of the spirit. The falling of the spirit in the book of Acts shows these tongues of fire that they look around and go are above everybody's head. So I look at a moment like that and I'm like, okay, I want to do due diligence here. Like the spirit of God, God's speaking, his spirit's coming, this is moving and I'm being commanded to be filled with the spirit and I would argue by letting the word of God dwell in me richly. Well, here are these two passages, Acts 2, Ephesians chapter five, being filled with the spirit. So I'll sit down and this gets into silence, contemplation, meditation. And some of you are gonna go, this sounds really weird, okay? I just say, you better figure out what dwelling means for you. So I'll sit and I'll literally sit just like this and I'll close my eyes and envision like, Jesus, you tell me in the book of Luke, how much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Like no father gives bad gifts to his children. He wants to give you good gifts. Like the book of Matthew says, therefore, ask for good gifts. But the book of Luke says this really interesting thing where he transitions from gifts to the spirit. He says, how much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Lord, give me the Holy Spirit. You promised you would. And then I'll envision a flame above my head, like the Holy Spirit. And I'll literally at that moment, I'll ask myself this question. Like when God comes to Adam and Eve after they've sinned and said, where are you? It's not that he didn't know where they were. There's this moment where I'll really go, where am I right now? Realistically, what am I worshiping? What am I trusting in? What am I anxious about? God, you tell me not to be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries about its own. And I'll sit there and go, I'm anxious. And I feel it. Like I can feel it in my body. I can sense it. Why am I anxious? And then I'll just, God, heal me. And I'll literally go, if the filling of the spirit, if God's giving me this imagery to be filled with the spirit, I'll envision the flame, like literally giving forth like a warm liquid that I'm going, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's spoken of as living water all over the Bible. And I'll envision it like hitting my toes, moving up my body, and I'll literally be praying while I'm confessing sin, Lord, do these things. But then I'll just go, God, I just want to sit, be still and know that you're God. And I'll let it come over me specifically in the midst of that. Now, hear me on this. It's not divorced from Bible study, right? Now, one of the bad things about many of us is we have to do Bible study to do our jobs. And you can begin to view the Bible like it's just a tool of your trade. Okay, let me just tell you this. This is a tool to form, but this is not just the tool of the trade. This is the life-giving words of God. So if you ever view it as something other than that, that's a massive problem. But I'll literally just sit there. And as it fills me to the top, then I'll just sit with it. Like, God, you tell me, and then I'll pray. Like, let the spirit, ha- spirit have your way. Manifest the fruits that only you can manifest. I'm gonna stop on this notion, and then I'm gonna pray, and we'll do some Q&A. If you look at the way in which in the Bible um, the movement of God to us happens, God calls forth his son, his son comes, right? This is common Bible passage. For God so loved the world that he gave, sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes him. The son, right, in this very real way, you have this then progression of how do we understand the son? 
We're Trinitarian, right? The Holy Spirit. What's the role of the Spirit all throughout the Scriptures? It's never to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to Christ. So the Father comes in Jesus. We see Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Now we encounter it, which means, and wrestle with this for a little bit, the Spirit's job is to draw your attention and to connect you to Christ. So when Jesus says, abide in me, right, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That's why Luke, Jesus is saying in Luke, ask for the Holy Spirit, for the abiding glue mechanism of us to Christ, which, so you know, if you're ever off on the Holy Spirit, you'll be giving more attention to the spirit than you will be to Christ. The spirit doesn't even draw attention to himself. He's always drawing attention to Christ, right? In the midst of it, but essential. And so many of us in this room, myself included, are like binatarians rather than Trinitarians. We just ignore the spirit. But you need to ask, God, give me the spirit that I can fully experience Christ in the minute. And that's what I just sit with, is Lord, I wanna leave with the fruits of the spirit with Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus on my mind at all times. So let me pray and then we'll do a, uh, some conversation. Father, we love you. Uh, thank you for your grace, your mercy, um, your goodness to us in Christ. God, the name that we will bow before at the end of time, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, is the name of Jesus. In your name, Christ is Lord. And so let us live out your lordship in all of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, we end at one, so we've got about 18 minutes for conversation. So any questions, pushback, um, things you want to observe, any of that. Let's go for it. Scott. Yeah, I was driving over here with Kevin um, actually recently, just today, recently. Um, and we were having a conversation, and one of the things I said is, I have a friend of mine that recently finished his PhD, and he had finished his seminary at a local evangelical institution. And when he got to do his PhD, he called and was lamenting with me. And his statement was, so much of North American evangelicalism is an absolute cesspool. Like, all we do is read modern to recent modern evangelicals who all read each other and we just drink each other's water all the time. And there's another guy uh, named Adrian Smith uh, that taught us one time and he said, one of the things you have to know is every tribe in Christianity has a canon within a canon. The verses you always go back to, the power of reading cross traditions is you begin to encounter Bible through other people that you'll go, I don't, think I've ever read that before. Like, or I feel like I've never read that passage before um, in the midst of it. And it's because you've been in such a lane that you never get out. So one of the things I would say to you and encourage all of you is to go always be a Berean, like always to everything, take everything back to the word of God and see if it's true. But some of you really need to start reading or engaging people outside your tribe, like move cross-generationally, like read more church history, read what those people are saying. Don't just presume, oh, they sound weird. Like, what are they trying to do? Why are they trying to do it? And that's where a lot of this stuff um, has come from from me, is people who are kind of connecting back ultimately and church father stuff of like, what were they doing? And I say this all the time. I, I think the best bet is to really ask yourself questions of words you've always heard, like the essence of meditation and going, what is that really? Like, is it just Bible reading? Is it just exegesis? Um, what is that? 
I don't know if we have enough time for me to go deeper without needing massive explanation, um, but I'm going to say this, and you guys can ask me questions later, and um, I'll prove to you that this is biblical, not heresy. Um, so right now, there is this huge movement in our society of mindfulness, okay? There's this, mind, you guys familiar with this? So if you go into a Barnes & Noble right now, when they lay out for Christmas, you'll see all of these adult coloring books. And some of them will say to relieve stress, right? And most people, like you'll say it and they'll laugh, like how ridiculous is that? Like a coloring book relieving stress, okay? Now think about this for a minute. What this does is it draws your attention to live in the moment, right? There's no way you can do a coloring book that's that intricate with little colored pencils and look at your phone every five seconds. You won't get anything done. You have to like really attentively live in the moment, color your picture, right? And then, and then the more you do it, the more you live in this moment. And what's really crazy, really, really crazy is now there's enough research in what they call brain science that they literally watch what's happening in your body and it relieves stress specifically. Well, you live in our society and you go, we really are stressed out like crazy, right? And if you just watched, like just observed creation, you'd go like, man, a lot of people are worried about what's coming down the pike. Like what's gonna happen with the Trump presidency and what's gonna, you know, it's, they're, they're really focused on the future. And then in the moment, they don't ever, they're just picking up their phones all the time. They're emailing. Last night I'm finishing the night. I'm talking to my wife, how I feel stressed and tired. And, you know, and then I'm sitting there like this and she's like, well, maybe put your phone down, right? Like that might help you, right? But let me go back to the coloring books. You begin to color and you go, okay, this begins to relieve stress. Medic- medicine saying, hey, this really does. Like, this is crazy. Let's do this more. And then you go, Well, Matthew chapter six, Jesus is talking about worry and the way he says to deal with worry is live in the moment, right? Wow, maybe like here is really teaching me something that the more I can sit and in a moment put my phone away and look at my kids' faces and really engage them, I know is better for them, right? I know they're gonna feel more loved, but this might say it's better for me. In these moments. So truthfully, there's been a lot of stuff through that um, reading and that movement and reading somewhat in neuroscience that that then I'm like, this is ridiculously biblical, which shouldn't surprise you if the God of the universe is the one who upholds creation by the word of his power. And what busyness ultimately is, is one, us trying to be God and trying to live like we're not human beings. All the mindfulness movement is at practice level. There's all kinds of nut, there's all kinds of things that wouldn't be Christian about what many people say about it. But at its core, what it's trying to do is get you to like embrace and live in the present, right? And it's astounding to me personally, when I observe what I'll now say Jesus is saying by living as a creature in the midst of his creation, not trying to be a God, and make a name for myself, like Genesis chapter 11, what happens to me? So honestly, it's stuff like that. And then it's not primarily that, but it's definitely, um, those are pieces of it, for sure. Kenneth Boa is a guy's name that I believe had background at Dallas Seminary. He's written some stuff on some short books on the Psalms and some different things that help you kind of slow down and do meditation. And really it is, in the end, Lectio Divina, which I find really helpful. And 
again, guys, you could write right now on Google problems with Lectio Divina and you could find every problem in the world. And I'd say run with it if you want to run with it, but you better figure out what it means to let the word of Christ dwell on you richly if you want the fruit of the spirit to be manifested in your life and in your ministry or organization or whatever you do. So anybody else? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think in the end, this is where kind of the true study, I mean, I, I don't want to be too theological here, but beginning to see uh, the fulfillment of Leviticus in Christ and what one, and also what Leviticus is really trying to do, like that's a huge part of true Bibles. Like what is this book trying to do? Like, what is the point of this? What is the purpose of it? Beginning to ask yourself um, substantive questions. And then you can't, I mean, I am a huge believer in more, there's more biblical scholarship, right? The people that really have the time to rightly answer those questions. And just so you know, now there's some incredible work coming out that I'd call translation. So I talk about this a lot is that anytime you see great things happen, you have scholars translators and then practitioners, people who practice it. And if any of you are interested in this, there's some people around here that could really help you, but get into some books that are translating some of those books that you don't have to feel like I have to wade through some scholastic theologians commentary on the book of Leviticus, but there are more accessible um, commentaries that are in the midst of that. So that's one thing I'd say is find those kinds of tools. The other one is what they call in theology, biblical theology, which is essentially the unity Different people use that term differently, but the unity of Genesis to Revelation. So there's a series that's pretty accessible. Not everybody in here would love it, but it was edited by D.A. Carson that has a biblical theology of a number of topics of how that begins to go. But some of those would give you exposure to kind of how um, this works. And then the last thing I'd say is a huge part of the work of Surge is trying to work at us understanding that this story of the Bible, this unity of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the forming story for the people of God. And if you try to read Leviticus disconnected from the story, it's going to be the dry, dullest thing in the world. If you read it in the context of the story, it begins to make way more sense. And I would say it many times uh, can be really worshipful. Now, let me just give a real practical thing. Nothing good happens easy. And the whole in in Christianity, this whole movement, which I believe the outpouring of the spirit of kind of revivalism and a lot of the, that even like, I'm not making a theological argument here, but I believe God moves in a moment and does things to people. But the revivalistic tendency of you can change right now, like right in the moment, we've appropriated or taking on for our view of growth and sanctification. And folks, it just does not work like that. Like you don't have a moment where you hear a speaker, you know, now the longer you pastor, people come up to you and go, that sermon changed my life. It's never my sermon, but you'll hear somebody say that, right? Or I was at a conference and it changed my life. Or I went on a retreat and it changed my life. And honestly, it it moved from me from like, that's amazing 
to then going like, oh, we'll see. And then now I'm like, that's just not true. <laughs> like, that, like, that's just not how change happens, right? Change happens. You have moments like where it can turn you towards life change. But if you don't develop habits in consistent practices, I'm telling you, and the history of the church shows this, you won't change. I'm, that's like, it, just take anything in your life. You don't have a, a good workout and get buff, right? You get buff through changing the way you eat and eating that way over a period of time and continuing to go to the gym. So part of what I'd say is like, if it feels dry right now, keep doing it and keep telling yourself the words of Peter, like, where else would I go? You hold the words of eternal life. Like if I want life, I'm gonna believe at some point the penny's gonna drop and I'm gonna get it. To me, that's the aspect fundamentally of the difference between like a living faith and one that really needs to prove itself is a living faith, even when it doesn't feel it, fundamentally goes, where else would I go? Like I'm staying because I know you're it. Like that, that's it um, in the end. You have, to, you have to move through those. So anybody else? Anybody? Thoughts? You don't have to just ask questions. All right. Let me pray. And uh, New City, thank you all so... Is there one? Was there one? Yeah. No, do it. Do it. We have time. That's great. Let me, I, I'm so glad you said this because I want to give you a few um, tools in the midst of this specifically for yourself or um, <clears throat> for other people. So one is the American Bible Society right now is doing a huge initiative to try to, in, to get the nation engaged, well, what they call Bible engagement. And so this is something, what we just talked about right now, the surge lunch is leaders, but as you go to normal everyday people in the midst of this, I'm just, one of the simplest, easiest things to do is provide them a simple on-ramp to just begin to engage the Bible. Now, I do think in the midst of that, uh, Chris Gonzalez and Missio Day community developed these symbols of what we call the true story, um, which is really helpful to frame for people when they begin to engage the Bible. Um, so that's a huge tool that you could talk to Chris. I think you could probably find those on um, the Surge website as well. But I'm just telling you guys, these simple things that maybe some of you came to Christ or whatever, and somebody just went, start reading the book of John. Don't stop doing that. Like, the word of God is inspired and breathed by God. And I'm telling you guys, even when somebody doesn't totally interpret it correctly, crazy stuff happens. God speaks and action happens. So, so there's a couple tools. Um, go to the American Bible study. The other one is these, these Bible apps that are out there right now. I mean, for you not to tell all your people, there's no way you should not have a Bible app on your phone. Is at the end of the day, whether it just sits there, there's better chance of somebody having it and popping it at one moment with it, and then providing just on-ramps. There's really simple, on the YouVersion Bible app, there is like a host of reading plans. I mean, a reading plan that can go five days to, 
to two years to what, I mean, in everything in between topical Bible reading plans. So there's a lot of the movement in ABS and there's all kinds of research, which if you're a Christian, none of this should surprise you is that as people engage in the Bible more, like marriages are better, better families are better, societies are better. Um, that shouldn't surprise any of us. So we should be the biggest advocates of that kind of work, of greater Bible exposure. Um, the other thing is, one of the groups that um, helped Uversion on their project is a group called One Hope, and they have a new thing that I think if I'm not mistaken, I think it's the most downloaded kids app worldwide, and it's the Bible app for kids, and they've done a really good job on that, so that's a tool. Uh, The other one Tim Keller talks about a lot is the Jesus Storybook Bible, which really is kind of what connects Christ through multiple of these aspects. Another thing that not just for kids, but if you're sitting out there going, I'd like it, I've heard Keller before mention to a group of pastors that if you want to know how to preach Christ or understand Christ in all the scriptures. One of the best tools I tell you to start with is this children's Bible. And everyone will kind of laugh and he'll go, I'm dead serious. Like, and it really is. Um, there's another children's Bible that I'd say the same thing about uh, called the Big Picture Story Bible. And uh, that's actually written off of Graham Goldsworthy's uh, work, but it's very similar and takes on kind of these themes of, that's the one where that I mentioned that is they disobeyed God's good word. Um, that kind of idea comes out of that. So that's just uh, a sentiment and statement. So that said, let me pray and we're done. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, the hospitality of New City. Thank you for the food that you gave us um, to fuel us for the day. And God, as I say that, I think about your words to us, that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, Thank you that you uphold the universe by your word and that your word is a good word and it spoke life into us. God, let us live and abide uh, in you through your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, y'all have a good day.